This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Pregnancy is often, or in postpartum period, is it often a trigger for autoimmune conditions. So for some women, we have this kind of maybe smoldering potential autoimmune condition. They get pregnant for the first time, they have their baby, and then in the postpartum period, their immune system goes into overdrive and kicks back in. And that is the initiating or spark that sets off this Hashimoto's. Welcome to FemPower Health, Georgie here. I've had the honor of speaking to so many thyroid experts on the podcast about thyroid disease, but as you well know, it is complicated. So today I bring to you another expert to speak about a different nuance, and that is related to pregnancy. Dr. Katie Rothwell is a naturopathic doctor and educator who specializes in thyroid problems and pregnancy and we'll talk to you specifically about how thyroid plays an essential role in fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum. So let's take a listen to my conversation with Dr. Rothwell. Katie, it is so nice to have you on the FemPower Health Podcast. And I had reached out to actually previous guests and said, okay, who else is an expert on thyroid disease that I must have on? Because January is Thyroid Awareness Month, and it is such a complicated condition, especially with so many of the symptoms. And we're going to actually focus on those who are pregnant and thyroid disease. So this is an area we haven't covered yet. So why don't you first start by giving an introduction, and then we can dive right in. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here, so thanks for the invitation. Um, My name is Dr. Katie Rothwell. I'm a naturopathic doctor, and I live and work in Barrie, Ontario, Canada. Um, So I've been in practice for about eight years now, and most of that has been focused specifically on thyroid health. Um, And because women are primarily affected with thyroid disease, it's, you know, my my clinic is full of women with um, thyroid conditions. Um, And it's been a really amazing and fulfilling eight years um, so far anyways. And um, I really strive as a naturopathic doctor to assess the whole person. We really focus, you know, closely on assessment. And then we want to provide our patients with a full scope of options in terms of treatment. So a lot of my patients come in saying, you know, I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism maybe 5, 10, 15, even 20 years ago. I started a medication. I've never really felt well again. You know, what are my other, what are some other things that we can look at? What are some other things that we can do? Um, So that is basically, you know, our entire journey together um, in helping these people and these women feel like themselves again because they feel like they have lost 
at least a piece of themselves along this thyroid journey and it has basically run their life for such a long time. Um, so my kind of special pet project or passion, you know, going even more narrow is helping women around that fertility, getting pregnant, staying pregnant and postpartum when we're looking at thyroid diseases. And so there's such a additional depth and conversation and complication uh, when we're combining these two fields. Um, and a lot of women are falling through the cracks. So it's such an important conversation that we're having today. And I'm, I'm just very grateful to be here. So I did want to just let folks know what has been discussed on the podcast so far, because I feel like the way I do these interviews, it's almost like chapters of a book. You know, I cover like general themes of a topic and then we get into nuances. And, and so, so far I've covered with Denise Rogues, who runs Thyroid Change. We talked about, you know, could your undiagnosed symptoms be thyroid disease. And so there we, mm-hmm. we, you know, talk about some of the complications and why there's challenges in getting diagnosed. So if people are worried about that, please go to that. I also interviewed um, Victoria Gasparini, and she is a patient. And as you mentioned, she is studying now to um, be a naturopathic doctor as well. And so she talks about that journey and her blog, etc. And then I also interviewed Rachel Hill, and she talks about the real challenges and even when you're on medication sometimes things don't work and there's a lot of nuances around the medications and and she provides her experience there so if anyone's interested in those um, please do check out those episodes so today we're going to focus on that pregnancy journey from fertility and beyond so so talk to us on what's let's start at a high level like what's unique there i mean obviously there's the obvious that our hormones are in a different place etc but um you know what's what are the things that may not be so obvious that are so important to understand in that pregnancy and fertility journey yeah well i think from a an umbrella bird's eye view we see that thyroid health and if we're going a little bit deeper hashimoto specifically which i think that you've covered in terms of what that is um, your viewers are aware that Hashimoto's is that autoimmune form of hypothyroidism. So both hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's has a really big effect on a woman's ability to get pregnant, stay pregnant, and have a healthy and happy postpartum period. Um, so if we're not doing proper assessment, proper monitoring, we're really missing a huge area where we could be improving a woman's fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum um, journey and experience. So let's start with the the fertility aspect, because there's a lot of complications that are happening. So what I would assume is right now we're not necessarily covering, I'm on fertility treatments, what do I need to do? It's really, I'm trying to get pregnant. How can one be proactive because there's the, and this is why I did the episode with Denise, there's the I don't know what I don't know piece, right? And what should a woman woman know, do, and even be proactive about, even if it's, you know, going to their OBGYN and what are the questions they should be asking to make sure all things are sorted out? Because I'm sure you mentioned seeing that woman who's come in and was on medication 10 years ago and is having challenges. So I'm gathering a lot of the women who are struggling come to you. So what's that path to eliminate those delays? 
Yeah, so I would say, you know, from the top in terms of purely looking at our thyroid hormone levels, so looking at our TSH value, um, in terms of a normal lab range, it's fairly broad, you know, anywhere from 0.5 to 4.5, depending on the lab that we're using. Specifically from a getting pregnant and staying pregnant perspective, we actually want that TSH to be in a much more narrow range. So likely between a one and two. So, you know, a fraction of what that normal lab range is actually. So a lot of women come in on thyroid medication, um, but their hormones are not optimized specifically for fertility. Maybe their TSH has been 3.5 for the last three years and it's not flagged by their family doctor. It's, they're not told to increase their medication from a fertility perspective, but maybe it's been nine months or 12 months since you know trying to conceive and nothing's happened, or maybe they've even have a miscarriage or two at this point. So this is a real major gap where, you know, sometimes I'm seeing people for the first time where this has been their story and just like the really like basic piece of it in terms of optimizing that TSH hasn't yet been looked at. So I think for women who have hypothyroidism, have Hashimoto's, or on thyroid medication, need to take a look at their blood work themselves, you know, have be your own advocate, get informed about where those levels need to be, and have a conversation with your primary care practitioner around what's optimal from a fertility standpoint. So we can avoid, you know, the the waiting and the year or two that it, it might take for someone else to find that as an issue or potentially avoid, you know, a miscarriage, which obviously if we could present, prevent even, you know, one miscarriage, then that would be um, an amazing feat. Absolutely. Now, you're mentioning TSH, and in all the interviews I, I have done, um, and I'm sure you'll get into this, there's other uh, levels that give a whole picture of your thyroid story. And I've been hearing great concern over measuring the, just the TSH and how it doesn't give the full picture. And so are you speaking specifically about people who already know they have an issue and at this point it can be the, the TSH that's really looked at? Yeah, I would say in in most cases, although in sometimes we are seeing, you know, people who are unaware that they have a thyroid issue at all um, and they haven't yet gone through that thyroid screening from a fertility perspective and they need to. Um, but a lot of the patients that I see are already diagnosed, are taking medication, but are not on a proper dosing and their TSH isn't within that optimal range. There's definitely a subsection of people where their TSH might look perfectly optimal, even to my eyes, and they are still experiencing symptoms and there are still issues that we need to address. Um, but I think from a um, starting point, from a fertility perspective, we really just need to make sure that TSH, TSH is, is in that, um, that range. And then if it is and we're still having issues, then we keep looking, right? We keep digging. Um, and like you said, there are other thyroid tests that need to be done. Um, so I always recommend including a full thyroid panel for that reason, because TSH can give us valuable information, but it's not the whole story. It's, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg, um, if you will. So we also want to be looking at our free T4, our free T3, um, and probably 
most importantly, in my opinion, would be our thyroid antibodies. Um, so the thyroid antibodies are what test for, diagnose Hashimoto's. Um, and if they're present, if we have somebody with positive thyroid antibodies and therefore they have Hashimoto's, this also impacts their ability to get pregnant and stay pregnant and also impact their postpartum health as well. Um, so we see that the presence of antibodies in somebody can create actually local inflammation or changes in the ovaries and can impact the quality of health of our eggs. Um, it can also impact our ovarian reserve. So ovarian reserve means essentially how many eggs we have left. Um, so sometimes we see a lowered ovarian reserve or um, a premature ovarian insufficiency where women are, for lack of a better term, running out of eggs sooner than we would expect. Um, so these are other things that we are noticing now in the research among women who have these positive antibodies and is really important to be aware of as a practitioner and a woman, um, you know, if you have Hashimoto's. Interesting. It, when trying to get pregnant, there is a nuance in what your levels should look like. And so we shouldn't assume, let's say you do already know you have a thyroid condition. It sounds like there needs to be just a double check on where you are Definitely. to optimize your fertility. Um, and then I assume there's like a whole different category of if you don't even know you have a thyroid condition and need to get that diagnosed, like that's that's probably a whole other discussion we can have. Um, and I'm assuming a lot of the things we'll talk about will come out and, and help inform that. Lab values. So, so many of the practitioners I speak to um, have said, and these are MDs, naturopathic doctors, you name it, um, have said, we want patients to be their own advocate. I mean, we all live with our own bodies. We know our own body best. You know, you all have the training that helps us get our bodies to the place it should be. So it really does need to be that dual conversation. But I will tell you, you know, I, I feel like I'm proactive and I've interviewed like 100 experts on every women's health condition. So I feel like I've got it down, but I still get stumped on these lab results because, you know, you have these range. So you have like the sheet and it'll say, here's the range and then where you are in the range. And with thyroid, I'm learning, this is like really tricky. And even when it's not thyroid, I'll see my level maybe out, you know, of the range. And my doctor's like, oh yeah, you're fine. And I'm like, am I really fine? And I'm like, but I'm not an expert in this area. Like one time I think it might've been my liver. So I'm like, do I have liver disease? Should I push on this? Do I now need to be educated? So it becomes really overwhelming. And what in the world do I do with these lab results? So because we now know the thyroid piece is so sensitive and so important to get right for a variety of health reasons, yeah. what do we do with these labs if we want to be proactive? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening in terms of sometimes that that TSH range in terms of the lab is only going to flag it and alert a physician if it's over four. But from a fertility perspective, we probably don't want it to be too much higher than two. So it is up to us to get that you know lab report and look at our TSH and the value that we have been reported. You know, is it? 0.8? Is it 1.3? Is it 2.5? Is it 3.5? Um, and 
aiming for one to two, if we are somebody who is aiming for, um, you know, fertility conception, you know, in the in the very near future. And I would argue as well that most women I work with feel best when their TSH is in a more narrow range, regardless of whether they're aiming or, or their goal is to have a baby. Um, but certainly for you know, this subpopulation, we want to be a little bit more picky. So having that conversation with your family doctor, if that is a goal of yours around, you know, I've been, maybe I've been trying to have a baby for three months and I'm worried my thyroid is affecting it. Can we look at changing our dose based on what these, you know, what the research is showing, what these associations show around recommendations for TSH around fertility and pregnancy, Um, or perhaps asking for a referral to an endocrinologist or a fertility clinic who tend to have a little bit more of a stringent view around TSH and where we want to see that. A lot of fertility clinics in terms of assisted reproductive technology, doing IUI and IVF, they will not let patients progress through that pathway unless their TSH is under 2.5. So that should tell you a whole lot right there that, you know, they are putting so much weight on the fact that a TSH is so valuable and so important to optimizing our thyroid function. Um, They don't want patients to waste their time and money. um, And certainly, you know, it's a lot of energy and can tax our mental health unless their TSH is in that in that optimal range. Could you have a TSH of 2.5 but still have other labs be off like the antibodies etc and are you and if that's the case are you finding that the subspecialists like the fertility clinics and endocrinologists are they routinely looking at the whole picture? So yeah Part one of the answer is that for sure, absolutely, you can have an absolutely normal TSH. 1.5 looks beautiful and still have positive antibodies. Um, this is the, va- the you know, a vast majority of patients that I'm working with who are medicated on Hashimoto's um, and what their labs are often telling us. Um, and the other parts of conventional care in terms of family doctors, endocrinologists, reproductive endocrinologists are not commonly testing for those antibodies at this point. Um, And positive antibodies can be a barrier to getting pregnant, as we mentioned. So Hashimoto's is one of the top causes of secondary infertility. So secondary infertility is Um, a term that we use for people who have had a first baby, no problems, and then they go to maybe try to have a second baby and they start to have issues. Maybe it's taking a long time to get pregnant or they get pregnant and have a miscarriage. And we find that positive antibodies and Hashimoto's is actually one of the leading causes of this. Um, So it is something that's really valuable and important to be screening our our patients for. Um, And some, certainly some endocrinologists and, and fertility clinics are doing this, but I don't think that all of them certainly are because um, a lot of women are still falling through the cracks and we're having to do this type of assessment um, when they come to see me and we want and we're looking for more information. Interesting. So let me ask you this then, since you're saying it's such a, a common factor in secondary infertility, is this like what's happening? Is the woman's body changing once she has a child and perhaps 
the Hashimoto's gets like exasperated is the word that's coming to my mind. It's not the right word, but you get what I'm trying to say. Like, is it, does it just come out and appear? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of, there's two big factors that I think of. One is that pregnancy is often, or in postpartum period, is it often a trigger for autoimmune conditions. So for some women, we have this kind of maybe smoldering potential autoimmune condition. They get pregnant for the first time, they have their baby, and then in the postpartum period, their immune system goes into overdrive and kicks back in. And that is the initiating or spark that sets off this Hashimoto's um, or um, autoimmune thyroid disease. So that is a possibility in that that first pregnancy might have been one of the triggers. And then we're finding the result or the end result of that affecting their second pregnancy. The other possibility is that maybe they've had Hashimoto's all along, and we see that the longer a woman is exposed to thyroid antibodies, the more likely it is to impact things like ovarian reserve and egg quality. So it may be just the length of time they've been exposed to these autoimmune factors in the body. Now, since you said autoimmune, like how has COVID played a role in this? Yeah, it's so interesting. I think it's such a spectrum of experiences and I've certainly had patients who have experienced flares or exacerbations of their Hashimoto's and autoimmune diseases and symptoms following a COVID infection um, and viral infection like COVID. Um, That virus seems to be really good at um, aggravating our immune system. Um, So it can definitely be causing um, some worsening of pre-existing issues and sometimes could be a trigger as well um, in terms of that spark setting off this pathway or um, process in terms of leading to a more pronounced autoimmune picture. What might we need to cover in this pregnancy and postpartum phase that um, women should be proactively aware of and and prepared Mm -hmm. for? Yeah, so another one, so if you are diagnosed, you have hypothyroidism, you're on thyroid medication, our need for thyroid medication often increases when we become pregnant. So by 20 or 30%, so a significant um, amount. So this is another time where, you know, if you find out that you're pregnant, um, we want to be checking in with our doctor, certainly from a prenatal assessment, but also checking in on our thyroid levels and whether or not our medication needs to be adjusted. Um, because that is a very common thing that needs to be um, done for women on thyroid medication. Um, and I would argue that we don't, we're, we're not just testing that TSH once in a pregnancy, but we need to be checking it repeatedly, especially if there's been a history of a TSH that's been fluctuating or somebody's had repeated miscarriages or they have Hashimoto's disease. Um, There are a number of associations and recommendations that recommend testing TSH every four to six weeks over the first half of a pregnancy. Um, And that's not only important in terms of maintaining pregnancy and preventing miscarriage, but also important for fetal or baby development. So up until about 20 weeks and even beyond that, 
baby relies on mom's thyroid hormones to develop properly. Brain development, spinal development, nervous system development, all of this is so dependent on thyroid hormone exposure. Um, so again, if we're not getting adequate thyroid hormone, then this can be impacting um, health of us and potentially health of our baby as well. Some may ask, what about medications? Are they safe? So clearly getting the thyroids in the right thyroid levels in the right direction is, is critical and you just explained why but what about the the dosing and just being on meds in the first place yeah so our most common conventional medications being a levothyroxine that's the vast majority of, of people are prescribed this type of medication lots of safety lots of research that's been done on this medication it's the most commonly prescribed um, and certainly safer to be on it during pregnancy than not um, because of the reasons why I just mentioned um, there are other medications or other thyroid medications as well. Um, we talk about combination thyroid medications that may contain T4 but also T3. Um, these are also safe as long as we are supporting healthy T4 levels. Um, so we do want those T4 levels to ro remain quite robust and in um, a quite healthy level because that is what the baby is able to use is that T4 hormone. Um, so we want to make sure that if we're on a combination medication, um, our T4 levels remain in a good healthy range. From a reality perspective, are you finding that generally doctors understand this and are helping guide their patients, or, or do you see this as an area where proactivity is um, required as well? I think in the vast majority of cases, proactivity is, is required in terms of advocating for ourselves. Certainly, if we've had a history of challenges around either thyroid health or fertility, um, looking for more regular screening through pregnancy, um, and then in that postpartum period as well. Um, I spoke briefly about how that postpartum period can be another time where there can be a lot of changes and upset in thyroid function that tends to occur anywhere from three to six months postpartum. So this is at such a I would say fragile time in that postpartum period, right? A lot of women are experiencing fatigue, changes in mood, you know, potentially um, postpartum anxiety or depression. Um, there's, there's so much going on in their life that's changed, and we don't always attribute those changes to thyroid health. Um, but we really need to be screening our women um, in that time frame, especially if they have a known thyroid issue, to see if there has been any changes, because a lot of time um, there is a role uh, that the thyroid is playing there. Is there anything that we should cover around the dynamics of, you know, because I'm assuming thyroid health doesn't fit in a, a neat, pretty box, that it's a complicated system. So is there anything that we should cover there that would be helpful for, for people to be aware of? Yeah, like you said, obviously all of our hormones are interconnected and they operate together and things like that. I will say that for a lot of women, 
who have Hashimoto's, um, in pregnancy, what happens is that our immune system kind of takes a back seat. So it kind of takes the, you know, the next nine, 10 months off um, and relaxes a little bit because we don't want to activate a strong immune response against our own baby, right? That would not be good. Um, so a lot of women actually feel amazing during pregnancy um, because they're not having this really strong immune response anymore in relation to their Hashimoto's. Um, however, like I said, that immune system kicks back in around that three-month mark, and that can sometimes lead to some skyrocketing values in terms of antibodies and, and thyroid hormones. So that process is something that we definitely want to be aware of. And obviously, we're seeing hormone drops in that postpartum period as well, which often will factor into that too. So our estrogen is dropping off, our progesterone is dropping off, our prolactin, you know, our milk hormone is increasing. Um, and this can have, um, all of those hormone changes can impact thyroid health and vice versa. Thyroid health can impact um, all of those hormones as well. So milk supply and breastfeeding is another big one that, you know, if, if women are having issues with milk supply or initiating or maintaining milk supply, we should be screening their thyroid um, because it can absolutely impact ability to um, produce adequate milk for, for baby. Wow. This is interesting. I will say I had a really tough time nursing, like yeah. to the point of getting delusional. Um, but I'm now so curious what was going on because I don't really remember any discussion of thyroid disease. It was me saying to um, the pediatrician, I'm, I'm committed to breastfeeding and I lactation consultants became my best friend. It was- Oh man, they're amazing. I could not have done without my lactation consultant either. Um, they are incredible, incredible professionals. Um, so essential. What else might, might be missing? I'm hearing advocacy, things change yeah. throughout the fertility, pregnancy, postpartum. Have we really covered it all? Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked a lot around how having thyroid issue may increase risk of certain things and we want to be on top of our labs and making sure we have antibodies tested. Um, I think it's been maybe not so much like doom and gloom, but all kind of bad news for women who have thyroid issues around fertility and pregnancy. Um, and important for people to know that there is so many things that we can do beyond just taking a medication in order to support this process as well. We've talked a lot about, you know, being on medication, making sure it's the right dose, but there is so much breadth beyond that as well that we work with our patients and are improving things like antibody levels and reducing inflammation. Um, so we are reducing the impact that Hashimoto's is having on their bodies from a fertility perspective, reducing risk of postpartum thyroiditis, and supporting them through this whole pathway. What I also find interesting is until we know what's possible, we normalize whatever our experience is, whether mm -hmm. it's with the doctor or our day-to-day -day life. And what I'm finding really interesting is, is working with experts to say, paint that picture of how we should be feeling or the types of things that can work or what the experience with the healthcare professional should look like so that we have things in an ideal state. So maybe 
you know, that's how we can address this. Because I think it's it's so important. Um, you know, I, I think Washington Post recently published an article about how pain is being normalized mm. and interviewed so many experts and have has a ton of data about that. Um, so so it is a real problem. Um, so so talk to us about what it should look like and what can be done. Yeah, I mean, in a, yeah, what it should look like. Ideal world, you know, if I had a magic wand and, <laughs> and every woman with Hashimoto's would get this conversation with their, you know, practitioner. Yeah, okay, so what I would love women who, you know, have Hashimoto's and who are taking a thyroid medication, you know, we talked about some of the ways that, I'll take, for example, antibodies. So our thyroid antibodies, we talked about a couple factors. We talked about the longer we're exposed to them, the more they may impact our long-term fertility and our, you know, ability to um, have have babies. We talked about antibodies in terms of the longer they stay positive through our pregnancy, where they are typically falling, that increases our risk of postpartum thyroiditis. So, you know, having a plan in place to um, no matter where you're meeting a patient, you know, maybe they're 23 and not at all planning for pregnancy in the future. Maybe they're 36 and want a baby tomorrow. Um, but having a conversation around those thyroid antibodies and how we can support um, that autoimmune process and reducing that on the body and in turn improving how they feel is really a long-term goal that I have with all of my patients. So we tend to look at, yes, we've we've covered, you know, the medication, optimal hormones. I feel like we've got a really good handle on that today. But we also can look at things that we have in full control of in terms of, you know, our diet and lifestyle, um, as well as there are some really key supplements and nutrients that are really valuable for this population that we see coming up in the research again and again, um, and we need to be considering for these demographics. And what might those be? And by the way, I'm yeah. so glad you're saying there's research on a lot of these because you know, one of the discussions I see a lot on social media, and, and I have these discussions as well, is there is often such limited research and yeah. people are poo-pooing what certain professionals may be doing. And my response is like, in absence of data, what else are we supposed to do? I'll wait 10 years for the clinical trial to happen and then it being embedded into day-to-day -day practice when there are certain practitioners who do this every day and see what works and what doesn't. And granted, of course, we always want to be cautious. And I know there's yeah. a million caveats to that. So talk to us about some of those examples of things like the food, the supplements, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, from a dietary perspective, in terms of, um, I mean, this, it's so hard to study nutrition <laughs> um, and especially, you know, specific to thyroid health and Hashimoto's, we have a real lack of research and data on what type of diet is best for that you know, condition. Um, I think overall, my general recommendation is focusing on a anti-inflammatory Mediterranean style diet. So our Mediterranean diet is probably the best research diet in terms of 
overall health, overall long-term mortality, cardiovascular risk, things um, like cholesterol and blood sugar uh, metrics and things like that in the long term. So we're focusing on an abundance of fruits and veggies of all colors, shapes, and sizes. We're looking at healthy oils like our fish oils and our nuts and seeds and lots of olive oil. Um, We're looking at reducing inflammatory foods. And by inflammatory foods, I'm talking about these you know, major inflammatory foods that are causing issues for the vast majority of people in terms of an overabundance of saturated fats and red meats, potentially. Um, We're talking about an overabundance of these, you know, highly refined, processed, sugar-laden foods. Um, And we're talking about alcohol. Like, this is another thing. I mean, in Canada, we've just revised our recommendation around alcohol intake um, because we now recognize it's one of the biggest carcinogens left in a lot of people's diet and lifestyle. Um, And obviously it's, you know, hopefully not being consumed during pregnancy, um, but it's another conversation that we need to have as far as, you know, alcohol is a potential pro-inflammatory carcinogenic thing that we're consuming. And if I had to say, I'd rather you avoid alcohol or, I know gluten gets talked a lot about for, for thyroid health, or avoid gluten... I would pick alcohol hands down every time. Like that's how much I feel that we are underrepresenting and underselling the impact that ongoing alcohol intake might have on our immune system and long-term health. And we have so much more research for alcohol versus gluten where we're really missing those very clear connections between gluten and Hashimoto's disease. Wow. Okay. What about supplements? Yeah, so talk to us about that because that's that's a hard one. They're, all the brands are pitching that they're the most researched, the safest, the best, and I do notice none of them make claims on what condition they may or may not help. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but I'd love to know what, what types of supplements, and even if you'd comment on what to look for in brands, because that's, I still don't have a great answer on that one. Yeah, it's a tricky one for sure. And and brands is challenging because there is such a role that marketing plays in that and how they're promoting themselves and how they're marketing themselves to patients. Um, and we end up having a cupboard full of vitamins that we've been sold on Instagram and Facebook and we have no idea whether or not they're good or recommended for us. So I think that my ultimate you know, recommendation would be working with someone who understands your history, your case, and is going to look at, you know, an evidence-informed, you know, view in terms of what supplements are going to be perhaps the most advantageous or the most effective for you um, in a from a starting point. Um, so, you know, I'm not talking about anything crazy or uh, out of the ordinary as far as supplements, but something as simple as vitamin D. Um, we see having a breadth of research when we're looking at autoimmune conditions in general, um, but also from a fertility perspective, 
miscarriage perspective, um, ovarian reserve perspective, and also Hashimoto's. We see lower levels of vitamin D levels, lower levels of vitamin D in those with Hashimoto's. And we see that giving vitamin D can help to lower thyroid antibodies. So this is something that's very simple, um, very easy to test through blood work. um, And we can dose appropriately based on lab levels to get them into more of that ideal range if need be. I mean, I live in Canada, so the vast majority of people come February, March, if they're not taking vitamin D supplements are deficient. Um, So this is something that is not generally covered or automatically tested for, for the vast majority of people, but something that can be really valuable. Um, the other supplement that we have a lot of research on for thyroid health is selenium. Um, so very simple micronutrient, a bottle of selenium may cost $14, right? This is not a very high end, you know, fancy supplement that we have to pay a hundred dollars a month for six months at a time or something like that. Um, this is something that is widely available. Um, specifically selenomethionine, um, has been most researched in terms of supporting Hashimoto's antibody reduction, um, and reducing the oxidative stress and inflammation that goes alongside that. Um, so those are two nutrients that are definitely foundational that if you have Hashimoto's and you're working with a practitioner and you haven't explored those, you absolutely need to be because of what we are seeing, um, in the research. And I don't know if you want to comment anything specific about sleep or any other lifestyle factors. Yeah, I think the conversation around, um, obviously, we think about commonly, you know, sleep and stress, right? And how these are playing such a role in so many different areas of our body um, and in our our long-term health. So we definitely want to be supporting healthy sleep um, and getting at least seven hours a night ideally is, you know, what we're shooting for. Um, and then also looking at our, our stress levels and our, you know, length of, of time that maybe we've been under a source of chronic stress. And that doesn't necessarily always have to be emotional or psychological stress. It can be physical stress. It can be chronic pain. It can be an injury. It can be a surgery we had. Like anything that's putting our body into that stress response um, are also things that we need to take into consideration. From a stress perspective, I, I do want to just ask this question, which is life can be hard and someone sometimes like I know there were points where I was under such severe stress and it's like you have to manage stress it's like okay duh (laughs) I know I need to but 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 how yeah um so what would you say are I don't know like good tips to consider so that someone who may be at the point of like that stress of I literally don't know what else to do but I want to stop being stressed what would be some realistic, helpful tips to give to someone who might be in that state? Yeah, it's it's a real challenge because as you mentioned, like there are times in our lives where we have high stress and these are due to factors that we have no control over. We cannot remove ourselves from 
these states of high stress, right? People can be like, oh, don't be so stressed or, you know, you need to remove this thing that's causing you stress. And it's like, you, you simply can't. Um, so it's about supporting ourselves in those small ways as much as possible in a way that's going to be manageable. I think it was Gretchen Rubin who... She talks about the habits um, and things like that. So, like, what you do every day is most more important than what you do, you know, once a week or something like that. I'm probably butchering that. Uh, I'm so sorry, Gretchen. Um, but if we can put in place even small things daily, that is what I talk about with my patients, very small, sustainable things. So this may be taking five minutes before bed and stretching on top of their bed, like not a big deal, right? Five minutes, it's hard to find someone who can't do five minutes of that. Or listening to a five-minute body scan or meditation. Um, Taking five minutes and just breathing. When you stop at a red light, take a deep breath. You know, like these are the small things that potentially can move the needle forward even when we're stuck in a state of really... Um, high stress that we can't necessarily change those external stress at that time. Um, So small sustainable changes. um, And I will say like we can't out supplement our stress, you know, like we can't say I'm just going to continue to live this stressful life, but I'll take some supplements so it'll be fine. Um, But there are some that are great in terms of helping to allow our nervous system to relax at the end of the day, help to get more restful sleep, um, especially in periods of short-term stress where we know that the next three months are going to be balls to the wall, crazy. I need to support my nervous system through this. I need my sleep habits to be on point. I'm going to take my magnesium every night before bed and do my five minutes of meditation, deep breathing, stretching. That's how I'm going to support myself. Um, and you know, those, those types of things can be, can be so valuable. And I also can't underestimate the impact that talk therapy can have, um, and the importance of having someone in your wellness circle that you can lean on for that specifically. Um, I think it's a, often underutilized tool for women. Um, And, you know, we look at our best friends and we talk to our family and and having a professional in the wing for us can be such a wonderful gift that we give ourselves. Such practical and helpful tips. And as you were talking, I have been taking very deep breaths. (laughs) Since you mentioned that, I feel like even more relaxed. What would be the key takeaway that you would want someone to gather from this discussion or maybe even like a top tip? Almost always advocacy because I feel like it's so valuable and so important and I know you probably feel the same way in terms of you know having your getting your own lab results asking your practitioners questions feeling like you're part of your own care circle these things are so empowering um, and so valuable and can really um, help us change our own health outcomes um, so a lot of what we talked about today is you know information and information is knowledge information is power and putting the power back into our hands and our patients' hands um, really is so beneficial for long-term management of some of these chronic conditions. Um, so that is that is always a takeaway um, whenever I'm, I'm speaking about this. 
how can people get in touch with you? I mean, this has been such a great conversation and you may be getting some folks reaching out. So I don't know if there's, um, you know, specific ask you may have of the listeners or tools and resources you you like or that you've created yourself that you'd like to point people to? Yeah, easiest place to find me, to connect with me, to see what resources I have is on Instagram. So you can find me at your.thyroid.nd. Um, and then LinkedIn bio is basically a list of resources. Um, often there are webinars that we've done on variety of topics. Um, and I'm also lead the Thyroid Academy. Um, so this is an educational platform platform primarily for professionals right now in terms of educating our next wave of health professionals around um, good uh, thyroid care, but we are also um, expanding that into patient educational programs into 2023. Um, so definitely stay tuned for that because we are going to be trying to reach uh, a wider audience in the coming year. Ooh, that's so, so exciting. Yes. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I'll put links in the show notes for all of this information so people can even just go there and click on everything. Amazing. So, And truly, thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking. I think we covered some amazing, amazing things today. And I'm just so happy to, to be here and share.